Good morning, everybody. Uh, my first official day as pastor here was July 29th, so I've made it three months. And uh, I just want you to know how, what a privilege it is for me to walk with Jesus with you. And I am so thankful for uh, Pastor Ed and the staff and the elders and the council and all of you as well. And uh, it's a privilege to, to uh, come up here and, and share God's word with you. This morning we're looking at, a, at uh, Genesis chapter 6. And when you find that, please stand with me. As we read God's word, we're going to read verses 1 through 10 this morning. Genesis 6 and verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Lord, as we look at your word this morning, we pray you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. Have you ever felt like you were the only one in a certain situation that was doing what was right? Have you ever felt like you were standing alone? That was true of Noah in his day. And I'm sure that I could think of a story from my life where I was, you know, standing alone. I was the only one standing for what is right. But I have done some things in my life, as I know we all have, that I am ashamed of. And so today, I want to confess to you a little bit of unrighteousness. I was in college, and one day I was driving my 73 Pontiac Firebird, and on the side of the road lay this sign. Attached to the 4x4 four four, uh, piece of wood that it had broken off of. And so I actually didn't steal it, I rescued it. <laughs> and, and, and I took it and put it in my garage. 
where I took it down from this morning. I've lived in about five different places since that time, and every place I've gone, this has gone with me. And so today, today I'm going to be leaving it right here. And I, I, if there's anyone here who feels led to return it to its rightful owners, be my guest. It would be the L.A. Traffic Department. Let's leave that right there. I'm not going to take it home today. I'm not going to do that. Noah was the last descendant in the godly line of Adam through through Seth. When Noah was born, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Methuselah, and his father Lamech were still alive. Enoch's preaching of the coming judgment would be remembered, as well as the meaning of Methuselah's name. When he dies, it shall come. Lamech would have taught his son the ways of the Lord. Noah grew up in a context of faith in the midst of a crooked generation. The righteous and the wicked. Today we see the first use of the words righteous and blameless in Scripture. To describe Noah in contrast to God's description of the human race at that time. Now, there are three phrases that stand out to us and point to God's judgment on the evil of that day. The first is this. The Lord saw the wickedness of man. We see it in verse 5. God saw that the wickedness of man was so great upon the earth that every thought of the intentions of their hearts was evil all the time. People had multiplied upon the earth. You see that at the beginning of this chapter. Many, many people had been born. We see that the sons of God saw the daughters of men and took wives for themselves, which wouldn't seem like such a big deal unless you look at the context. In the context here, God is not pleased with what is going on. Now, there are various views held by sincere and intelligent Christians, Bible-believing Christians, regarding who the sons of God were in this passage. The three primary views are they were Seth's people, or angels, or a dynasty of tyrants succeeded from the ungodly Lamech. Now, all three interpretations can be defended by Hebrew grammar. Uh, The first idea was the uh, traditional Christian interpretation uh, since the 3rd century, Luther and Calvin held this view, that the sons of God and the daughters of men were the sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain. The view that the sons of God were angels is a more ancient view held by our early church fathers. The third view, the interpretation that the sons of God were these royal, tyrannical successors of Lamech, um, has some historical support in an ancient Jewish interpretation that the sons sons of God here were nobles, Uh, aristocrats, princes who married girls outside their social status. Each of these views have their strengths, their weaknesses. Um, One scholar has come up with an idea of combining the angelic interpretation with the dynasty of tyrants view, and then the tyrants would be demon-possessed men, uh, 
those who were controlled by fallen angels. Whatever the case, though, the outcome of the unions, these marriages that happened, was not favorable, was not pleasing to God. And in regard to human sinfulness, things on earth had gotten much, much worse. Sin had multiplied exponentially upon the earth. So God says in verse 3, My spirit will not strive forever with man. Strive means to uh, contend with. It can also mean to shield or to protect. The judgment and justice of God would not allow His life-giving spirit to endlessly bear with those who cause disorder in His world. Things could get beyond the point of no return, and they had. God had already given them a sign in Methuselah's name. When he dies, it shall come. And now God sets a a time. His days will be 120 years, signifying how many years left before the flood comes upon the earth. And once again, God's judgment is seasoned with grace. Time to repent. Giving more time for mankind to repent of their sinfulness. Verse 4 tells us that the Nephilim were there on the earth. Those were the mighty men of renown. They were heroes in the day. Their name means fallen ones. Suggests their condition and their fate. And in verse 5 then we see that the Lord sees that the wickedness of man had gotten to the point that every intent of every thought was evil all the time. Continually. Before, what the Lord saw in his creation was good. Now, humanity had corrupted the earth to the point that it was permeated by rampant evil. Mankind had sunk to the depths of total depravity. As sinful as sinful could be. And the heart. The heart signifying the center of thought and emotion and the will. Had gotten so desperately wicked. So the second phrase we see is that the Lord was sorry that he made man. God was sorry that he made man on the earth. It says that he was grieved in his heart. That the Lord literally repented of making man. That he was pained. It it points to God's indignant rage upon sin. His anger towards sin. Now we know in the fullness of time, at the perfect time, at the right time, Christ's sacrifice satisfied God's anger against sin. Now we see a third phrase that the Lord said... I will blot out man from the earth. Mankind, whom God had created and placed upon the earth, God said, enough is enough. Points to the fact that everyone is responsible for their own sin, that judgment would come, and that God was going to start over. Start afresh. And up against this backdrop of extreme evil at that point in time in the world, in verses 8 through 10, we see Noah. Noah, he comes exactly halfway between Adam and Abraham. He is a pivotal figure in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. In Noah, we see God's choice of grace. We see God's hand because Noah found favor in God's sight. The King James says Noah found grace. With God. By grace, Abel and Enoch and Noah all 
were redeemed by God. All who were redeemed by God through the ages were saved by grace. And just as these three phrases previously pointed to God's judgment on the sinfulness of man, now we see three more phrases highlighting Noah's life. We see God's choice of grace in his description of Noah. The first thing we see about Noah is that he was a righteous man. Noah was a righteous man. What does it mean, righteous? This term combines dedication to God with ethics. It combines godliness with morals. One writer put it this way. To serve the interests of the creation, their neighbors and their king, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage others. Noah was justified by faith. Uh, He did what was right and just in God's sight because he was justified by faith. He's the first one in Scripture to be called righteous. What we see here is mercy in the midst of God's wrath against sin, pledging uh, the preservation and restoration of humanity. Noah's righteousness, we must remember, is not of his own doing. It's a gift of God's grace. And God worked in Noah to will and to do his good pleasure. Now we also see that Noah was blameless. He was righteous. He was blameless. What does that mean? Literally, it means that he was complete, that he was whole. It signifies wholehearted commitment and wholeness of relationship. The fact that blameless and righteous are paired together suggests that Noah was completely committed to righteousness. Giving his contemporaries no no grounds to accuse him. There was nothing they could point out about Noah. No signs he had rescued. No deeds he had done that they could point at and say, Aha! There's blame. No finger to point at Noah. Now, his blamelessness did not mean that he was sinless. It means that he was abstaining from sin. Noah was clean before God. Isn't it a good feeling to be clean? To be, to be really clean? Um, you really appreciate it when you've been really dirty. Now, for about 10 years, we took uh, four trips a year down to Mexico, down to Rosarito, and we helped plant a church. And this one trip, we're up on top of the, of the roof. We're basically roofing this church and putting, uh, you know, it was just uh, plywood, putting the tar down. We're up there, a very precarious position, by the way, um, and all of a sudden, a huge gust of wind came up. And this bucket of tar that we were using uh, got toppled over and just went everywhere. Now, the closer you were to the bucket, the worse it was. It was on our boots, our jeans, our shirts, our hands, our faces, in our hair. And we were already grimy, dirty. If you've been on a missions trip where there's no showers like we were, you're grimy, you're dirty, you're sweaty, you're dusty, and then pouring tar on top of yourself just makes matters worse. I actually kept the boots, kept the jeans. I figured, hey, they're ruined already. I can use them another time when I don't care if I ruin the clothes. Whatever the case, Noah, his heart... His life were clean. He was nowhere near the bucket. 
blameless before God, blameless before man. We also see that Noah walked with God. If you were here last week, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Just like Enoch. So what does it mean? It means the same thing as it meant for Enoch, that he experienced supernatural, intimate fellowship with God. It links Noah with Enoch, by the way. That Enoch was saved from death, Noah saved through the flood. Noah found favor with God. He found grace with God. What a contrast between Noah and the generation in which he lived. Mankind was wicked. Noah was righteous. Mankind made God sorry that he made them. God was pleased with blameless Noah. The world would be blotted out due to sin. Noah walked with God and would be saved from the flood. What we see is that the wickedness of man calls for judgment. It leads to judgment. We are, apart from Christ, ruined, undone, unclean, guilty. The wickedness of the, of the world and our own wickedness, what we see in our own hearts, what we know about ourselves, should make us tremble. The people of Noah's generation did not tremble before God. There wasn't any fear of God in their eyes. Evil had permeated the society, and it has permeated every society since, including our own. Good is spoken of as evil, and evil as good. In nearly every sector of society today, from the arts to entertainment, from science to medicine, from education to literature, there's no fear of God. Jesus said it would be like this, that from the days of Noah to the days of the sons of man, it would be like this. And Jesus in John 16 said that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. In fact, in 2 Timothy, we see a vivid portrayal of how things will be in the last days. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But we see something else in this passage. We see that the righteousness of God is all of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. For by grace you are saved through faith. Our salvation is a gift from God. Now the wicked generation of Noah's time mocked at God's grace, ridiculed God's grace, rejected it. Noah found grace in God's sight. And so do we in Christ. I want to talk for a few moments about Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness is our standing. It's our identity. We stand, we live by the grace of God. Apart from God's grace, we are all desperately wicked. We all have this common need and this this common bond. We are unrighteous, and we cannot be made righteous unless we are made righteous by another. We are frail and weak and sinful, and apart from Jesus, we are hopefully lost. We are reconciled to God only by grace. 
Without Jesus, apart from Jesus, we are under the curse of sin. We are held captive by its power and to its penalty. Apart from Christ's forgiveness of sin, there is no hope. The sinfulness of man sentences him to eternal separation from God. But Christ's righteousness leads to transformation. Christ's righteousness leads to spiritual change by his grace. When we are in Christ, we are different than we were before. We could all tell our stories about what we were like before. It's really easy for me to bring up a sign. But if we tell our stories about what we were like and how God changed us, how Jesus changed our life by the amazing grace of God. Our desires change. In fact, the whole focus of our life changes when we come to know Christ. To the point where As believers in Jesus, we do not love the world or the things of the world. That we don't listen to what the world wants us to do, but that we want to please what God, we want to please God and we want to do what He wants us to do. We want to be who He wants us to be. So what does the world want us to do? Well, quite simply, whatever is right in our own eyes. See, if we go by those rules, It doesn't matter what you do. We can justify it. See, God wants us to do what is right in his eyes. It's his evaluation that matters. It's his approval that counts. So what do you think the biggest enemy is to righteousness? Is it the world? Is it our own sinfulness that we are quite aware of? Or could it be something less blatant, a little, something a little more subtle. How about our own sense of goodness? How about our sense of not being as bad as other people? How about our accomplishments? How about our victories that give us a false sense that we are right in our own sight? See, self-righteousness is an enemy to true righteousness. See, self-righteousness leads to spiritual ruin. It messes us up. The people of Noah's day were corrupt in God's sight. But isn't it interesting? They weren't in their own. They had justified their sin. They were self-righteous. They had this false righteousness based on faulty understanding. See, our righteousness gets in the way of our relationship with Jesus. We have this propensity to become enamored with our own accomplishments, fixated upon um, self-righteousness-inducing idols, such as comfort. We all want it easy. I sure do. And that if we're comfortable, if things seem to be going the way we, we think they ought to go, that all must be right between us and God. Or how about success? If things are successful, if we are successful, if we can humanly quantify the fact that we are successful, then things must be right between us and God. How about 
the idol of appreciation, that we ought to be appreciated for what we've done and how we've poured ourselves out. And if so, if we receive that appreciation, things must be right between us and God. How about respect? That if we're respected for who we are and what we can do, that things must be right between us and God. Or how about control? This tendency we have to want to grasp things so tightly and make them go the way that we want them to go. And as long as things go that way, things must be right between us and God. You see, the people of Noah's day, specifically the Nephilim that were on the earth, they were men of renown. They were heroes. They were known for their exploits. But isn't it interesting? They were known for their accomplishments, but they were not known for their godliness. They were not known for their faith. They were not known for their character. They had a false righteousness. Paul had the same problem. In fact, go to Philippians chapter 3. Paul gives us his resume that hindered him from seeing his true condition and his need for Christ. Isn't it interesting on our resumes we don't put our sins? Nobody would hire us if we put down our weakest points and our sins. On our resumes, we put down all the things we think make us look good. What was Paul's resume? Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4. He says, If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, blameless. Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, righteousness comes from God through faith in Christ. And the substitution of anything or anyone in place of that simple trust in Jesus, that simple reliance upon Jesus Christ, the the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ, a, a reliance on anyone or anything other than that turns life itself into death. You see, Jeremiah tells us that the heart is desperately wicked. It's more deceitful than all else. It's sick. See, our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's like if you went home today and went to the hamper and got the clothes that have been at the very bottom of the hamper for the last six months, and then you took them and you rolled them around in the dirt in the backyard, then you let your dog sleep on them for a couple weeks, Then you put them on and warm around town. See, our righteousness is like filthy rags. It's putrid. But interestingly, it's very subtle. 
very innocuous. It just creeps in. You probably heard recently about a, uh, the, the crocodile hunter who died from a stingray barb in his chest. Well, it happened to another man recently as well. This man was on his fishing boat and a stingray jumped onto the boat and it stung him in the chest. And his wife was quoted as saying this. That stingray barb was like a razor. And he couldn't get it out himself. And every time it moved, it was cutting more and more into his heart. You see, surgery had to be done by another to take that barb out. I know a guy who recently got a fish hook stuck in his hand. Big fish hook. Bass lure. Had to be cut out by another. Because the barb was stuck in there and the more he pulled, the more it got stuck. The more damage it did. You see... We cannot rid ourselves of our own sin and we cannot rid ourselves of our own self-righteousness. The surgery must be done by someone else. The surgery must be done by God, which refocuses us on what is good and what is right and what is just and what is true and what is important. And when that happens, our lives are transformed. And isn't it interesting, that keeps happening again and again and again. Even as believers, we get stuck on our own self-righteousness, and God brings us back. You say, never again will I do that. And then we go again into that same pattern, and God brings us back in his grace and in his mercy. And then we again desire to serve the interests of others and desire to serve our King Jesus and be willing to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of others. I want to tell you a story about the Knights of the Silver Shield. There was this dangerous forest with giants inhabiting the forest. And in the middle of the forest was a castle inhabited by knights. And each one of these knights had a silver shield. And when they first got their shield, it was cloudy and dull. But when they showed themselves to be brave and honorable and courageous, the shield began to shine. To the point where you could see your reflection in the shield. And if they won a great victory, in the middle of the shield would shine a bright golden star. Now in this forest inhabited by giants, in this castle inhabited by knights, there were many battles. The knights would battle the giants. And if you showed yourself to be lazy or a coward, your shield would grow dull instead of shiny. And there was a young knight named Sir Roland. And his shield began to be shiny because he was showing himself to be brave and to be courageous, to be upright. And one day there was a big battle. And the king came to him and he said, I need one brave knight who must stay behind and guard the castle gate. And I have chosen you, Sir Roland, because you're the youngest. And he was angry. And he was sad. Because he wanted to go fight the giants. And for a moment he was tempted to lash out in anger at his king. But he kept himself together and he he agreed to stay behind and 
guard the castle gate. And so he did, and they all went out. He saw the knights riding away, and he was sad, but he stayed at his post. A little while, and another knight comes riding back. And he says to Sir Roland, I feel sorry for you that you have to stay here. I volunteer to take your place here at the gate, guarding the gate. You go and fight the giants. Sir Roland was tempted to go, but he remembered the word of his king. And he said, no, this is my job to stay and guard the castle gate. And the knight rode off. A little while later, and a little old lady came with a cane, knocking at the gate of the castle. And Sir Roland says, I cannot let you in. I'm under orders to not open this gate for anyone. And the lady began to laugh at him and to sneer at him and to ridicule him and said, well, you're just one of those knights that doesn't like to fight. It's a good thing they left you here at the castle. And again, he was tempted to open the gate, but he didn't. And the lady left. And a little while later, a little man with a sword came to the gate. He knocked at the gate and he said, Sir Roland, I have brought you a sword. I have brought you a sword so that you can go and fight the giants. Take this sword and go. Fight the giants. And Sir Roland was tempted to take that sword and fight the giants, but he said, no. My job is to stay here at the gate and guard the castle. Well, all of a sudden, this little man became bigger and bigger and bigger until he, he was seen to be a giant disguised as a little man. And he stomped away very angry. And as he left, out in the distance, Sir Roland could hear a bugle. And he heard shouts of victory. And all the knights came riding back. And they were amazed at Sir Roland's shield, bright and shining, but also with a golden star in the middle. And they said, Sir Roland has fought the giants and won the victory. And he says, I just stayed here to guard the gate. But every person that came up there was a giant trying to get into the gate and take over the castle. You see, the knight did what his commander, his king, his master had asked him to do. He did not do what everyone wanted him to do. His righteousness was the result of his love and his obedience for his king. Now think back to Noah. Noah's righteousness was from God and it affected his choices, his actions. Noah did not do what the world wanted him to do. He was building a boat for years when no rain and no flood came. Can you imagine the ridicule that he experienced? Can you imagine the sneers when he stood at his post? He did what was right because of faith in God. God was at work in him. He trusted God and therefore he made right choices. Now we will either completely submit to God or we will be, try to be God ourselves. And the answer to our self-righteousness is found as we repent of our righteousness. The things that we base our identity upon. The things that we think put us in good standing with God. The things that we think put credit in our account with God. See, nothing we can do will make us right with God. If grace were based on anything like that, it would not be grace. 
There is nothing in us that can merit the grace of God in his favor. And it's not only that we're deserving, excuse me, undeserving. We are deserving of exactly the opposite. We are sinners deserving God's judgment. But then we read these words in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ultimately, in Noah, we see Jesus. Noah was used by God to save humanity from destruction. Noah is a type of Christ. He, he foreshadows Christ, who is the only Savior from eternal destruction, eternal separation from God. Noah's name means rest. It means comfort. It means ceasing from labor, ceasing from work. Salvation in Christ is ceasing from our works and resting in his. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that Our righteousness is not based upon us because if it were, it'd be really messed up. We thank you, Lord God, that you demonstrated your love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you, Lord, that our standing with you is based not upon us, but upon you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.